Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, where we go back to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, and buy a 2B graphite pencil. Mm. Mm, that's the mystery of this week's uh, comic <laughs> book, which was picked by none other than Jim Werner of the Weird Science DC Comics.com website and podcast. Uh, he picked this quite a while ago, but we are getting around to it now. It is Animal Man number five, The Coyote Gospel. The has a nineteen eighty-eight Indicia date, but this is when comics were shifting from cover dates to being three months ahead to two months ahead, and no month was assigned to this one. And so this is really moving heavily into the direct market. Yeah. Is essentially what they're they're like, what are we you know, they used to do they used to future date the comics because they wanted people to keep them on the racks longer. Until then, yeah. But now when you're not gonna ever Theoretically, take them off the racks. You know, you'll you'll keep them forever anyway. Well, that's for another podcast that uh, we'll we'll do. <laughs> that we've been threatening. For a while. <laughs> uh, the on sale date though was September twenty seventh, nineteen eighty eight. Cover price one dollar and twenty five cents. Written by Grant Morrison. Art by Chaz Truog, Doug Hazelwood, and Tatjana Wood. Cover by Brian Boland or Boland. Yes. The absolutely like ridiculous Brian Boland. He oh, is God. amazing. It, it, you know, I, we were, I think we were talking recently how I'm looking at some uh, 2000 AD pages, but mm-hmm. it's like uh, anything. You know, I'll tell you, I, I don't know if such a thing exists, but the world could use a artist's collection of Brian yeah. Boland's work. I mean, I would definitely take a look at that, you know, best covers, best interiors, whatever. Because he did that Camelot 3000 that took forever to come out because he is so hyper-detailed. And he had that run on Green Lantern I loved. Yep. And, you know, uh, yeah, it goes on and on. He did amazing things. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, before we get to the book, we're going to do what we usually do. We're going to talk about the creators. And it seems like uh, a few of the times so far we've started by talking about this man, yeah. Graham Morrison. Uh, he was born January 31st, 1960, somewhere in Scotland. Uh, he grew up in a poor part of Glasgow. His father was a soldier in World, World War II, however, became a pacifist upon return with dreams of world disarmament. Um, his father was an advocate for the anti-nuclear weapons, uh, of which Grant mentioned seeing numerous pamphlets around the house, all featuring wonderful illustrations of po- post-nuke horrors, burning cities, charred remains, and nuclear fallout. Uh, he remember he remembers as a kid being used as a decoy by his father, so he could uh, he could go into uh, you know fenced in areas to take photos of yeah. nuclear bases. Uh, wow! His dad would his dad would kick a ball over the fence to use as an <laughs> excuse to be on the premises. Wow! But there, uh, he's a revolutionary for, at a young age already. You know, certainly right. Wow. Uh, he claims his father once made it into an underground base, uh, where he says that he found stacks of coffins with names of people from the electoral register, just in case nuclear war broke out. Wow. Uh, and uh, Grant would say that this would influence his work on the Invisibles, but we'll we'll discuss the Invisibles a bit later. A little bit later on, yeah. Uh, but Neil, when I'm uh, sorry, Neil Grant, when he was a kid, <laughs> he had discovered superhero comics and was attracted to them due to their ability to stop the bomb, in a sense, uh, this, that his family was fighting so hard against, uh, particularly Superman and Marvel Men. Uh, this would play into his Flex Mentolo miniseries, wherein the bomb was just an idea. We'll do more of that later. He does a lot of allegory in his stories. Yeah. Grant's mother was heavily into astronomy and would take him to science fiction films like 2001 A Space Odyssey in particular. Uh, Grant claims she once pointed to the star Sirius and told him that that was where they came from. 
Hmm. Grant's uncle was big into the couch. Sure, Ma. That's nice. What time's dinner? Uh, yes. Grant's uncle was big into the counterculture of the day and had an extensive library, including works by Crowley, which Grant would peruse. Unlike many of the folks uh, we bio, Grant was actually encouraged to continue reading comics, which all of this time, he seems very supported in what we would call alternative pursuits. Is, we think that's a fair I think thing so, to yeah. say. Uh, you know, yeah. This is a make the guy that he is today. That's I guess it's all Certainly. came to some good. Uh, first published works were Gideon Stargrave's trips for Near Myths in 1978 when he was about 17. Uh, Near Myths was one of the first British alternative comics, ran for five issues. He produced a weekly comic strip, Captain Clyde, an unemployed superhero based in Glasgow for local newspaper, The Govan Press. And he drew this also. This was really yep. his, yeah, he was drawing and writing. Uh, also wrote various issues of D.C. Thompson's Star Blazer. D.C. Thompson is a huge media conglomerate in the U.K. Handle, handling the Dundee Courier, the Evening Telegraph, the Sunday Post, or Wooly. <laughs> oh, man, I, <laughs> man, I wish I got you to say these, Chris. The yes. Bruins, the Beano, the Dandy, and Commando. And Commando, a fairly violent war comic, was their most popular comic book. Star Blazer was the sci-fi version of that. So just so it's some context is when I remember when we looked this up, I didn't know what DC Thompson's was at all. No. <laughs> um, he also began his young life touring with his band, The Mixers, submitting um, submitting some writing to publishers at the same time. And he did have at least one record I've heard, at least yeah. seen. I've never heard the music, I don't think, but I know it's out I've never world. heard it either. Yeah. I, I could only imagine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in 1982, he would submit a pitch to DC Comics for a JLA New God story, which... Uh, Depending on who you ask or how far you dig, uh, it was either rejected or well, it's probably ignored because, yeah. you know, he was a kid at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, after that, he did as, as his forebears did. He wrote for uh, publications like Warrior and 2000 AD. Uh, he'd write stories for Doctor Who magazine, including a collaboration with a then-teenaged, uh, very gifted writer in his own right, uh, Brian Hitch. Mm. <clears throat> well... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he had a run on the Zoid strip for Spider-Man and the Zoids. Sadly, this wasn't a team-up between Spider-Man and the giant robotic Zoids, but a book that they shared. Oh, man. I, would, I was, like, running to gonna run to the comic shop for I this know. one, yeah. <laughs> Grab the digitals. <laughs> uh, he created Zenith for 20, uh, 2080 with Steve Yowell. This was Grant's first regular strip that featured uh, Zenith, who was a superhero that was a uh, celebrity. Mm. He was a... Uh, he was not painted as a uh, as a noble character, really. He was kind of a jerk. He was uh, unlikable. He was spoiled. Um, at, uh, Rebellion uh, slash 2018 recently reprinted this in a uh, four hardcover volumes. Oh, cool. uh, after after doing a limited edition that was way too expensive. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> it's, it sounds worthwhile to look at. You know, this is a, that's the theme. Grand Morrison has gone back to. A few times, but this sounds like the first time he explored the superhero celebrity. Yeah, yeah, and so it, it's like, probably one of the first times that it was done in the industry, or at least contemporarily. I would think so, yeah, that early, you know, Booster yeah. Gold came a little later than that, right? Later than that, yeah. Now, he would catch the notice at DC, and they asked Morrison to pitch some stories, including the series we're going to discuss today. Uh, also, got to mention the original graphic novel, Arkham Asylum, a serious house on serious earth with a fantastically strange art by Dave McKean. Yep. Um, it, this introduced or at least popularized many te metatextual concepts to the comics uh, uh, regarding, you know, like uh, the crisis actually being mentioned as a thing and uh, inserting the author into uh, the story. Mm. Uh, now, uh, 
Arkham Asylum had uh, some very fortuitous timing. It was released right in the shadow of Tim Burton's Batman film. Uh, so Grant's work gets a far wider audience than he may have otherwise, or than he definitely would have otherwise. Um, Morrison claims that he'd got, he was uh, being paid $1 per copy on Ar- Arkham Asylum. So he earned just a quarter of a million dollars oh, in the wow. first run of that book. Um, we don't know if in the you know subsequent years if that deal has changed or how it's structured now or how it was structured even years after that. Yeah, uh, who knows? But I would I would a buck a book is pretty good. I would bet he's not making less than. I mean, usually the author makes more as as more copies are sold. Hmm. But you know, there are new editions. I, you know, I I he's still making money. That's I'll put it that way. I'd be shocked if he's not. He and McKean aren't collecting on every book. Uh, you know, and also the the explosion of that Arkham Asylum had a lot to do with the changes in the industry again, you know. Um, Absolutely. Dark Knight Returns had been really successful as a graphic novel and as well as Watchmen. Uh, other Mouse had, you know, but this is all stuff we talk yeah. about all the time. But, yeah, it, it, he was definitely right place, right, you know, right time kind of situation. Absolutely. Now we, uh, uh, as usual, we don't have as much information about the artist. Sometimes we get a lot. Depends depends who they are. But this time we don't have a ton. But you know, we, we got what we got uh, for Chaz Truog, born December tenth, nineteen fifty nine, in Central Minnesota. Grew up in a house built by his grandfather, August Truog, in nineteen nineteen. Received a Bachelor of Arts degree from Southwest State University in Marshall, Minnesota, in nineteen eighty two, and an Associate's degree in Graphic Design from Art Institutes International. In 1999, Sites' influences Frank Thorne, John Buscema, Milo Manara, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Adam Hughes, Rudy Nebris, Frank Frazetta, Boris Vallejo, and N.C. Wyeth. So, you know, big shock. He likes the, sure. some of the best artists in comics. <laughs> um, he cites Leonardo da Vinci by Emily Hahn as a book that changed his life and inspired, along with Dave Rawson and Pat McGreal, a 10-issue Vertigo miniseries. Chiascuro, The Private Lives of Leonardo da Vinci, 1995 through 1996 uh, releases. Uh, Do you ever read this one? I never read this. I never even heard of it. I've never even heard of it until now, yeah. Uh, This was nominated for the Eisner Award for Best Limited Series in 1996. Wow. Drew some of Steve Englehart's Marvel epic series Coyote and drew X-Men parody comic X-Men, no hyphen, just (laughs) Z-Men, as you call it, uh, for Milky Way Graphic Publications in 1986. The story was called Black Gene Lives, again, (laughs) and was a commentary (laughs) on how confusing all the dangling plot lines are in Claremont-era X-Men comics, of course. Once Claremont left the X-Men, everything got really easy to follow after that, right? Perfectly linear, uh, no, no, nothing dangling. I, th- I think now is a perfect time for you to explain to our listeners exactly what's going on with the X-Men and Marvel comics right now. In, Do they still publish those? In, in the first quarter of 2017. <laughs> oh, they, they just added like three or four right now. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> I, I've got them in a stack. I have... Uh... <laughs> I haven't touched them in quite some time because every time I do, I have urges to uh, hurl myself into yeah, something. Show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe like 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 maybe one day you'll have that uh, unlimited time. You'll be trapped in the bunker and you'll have to pour through them and you'll figure it out. And a lot of morphine. Uh, <laughs> now <laughs> we've talked about our creators. Let's talk about our character. This is Animal Man, Bernard Buddy Baker. He would first appear in Strange Adventures number 180. It was released September 14, 1965. It was created by Dave Wood and Carmine Infantino, who created just about every or co-created just about everybody back then. Right, like right in those years, yeah, like this right at the yeah. end, yeah. 
Now, he received his powers from an exploded spaceship. Uh, the radiation he took in allowed him to borrow the abilities of animals in his proximity. In his first 20 years of existence, poor Buddy only made five non-consecutive appearances, yeah. uh, including a, one a bit later on in uh, Action Comics number 545, which was uh, published in July 1983. Uh, that established him as a member of the Forgotten Heroes. Uh, it was a group of heroes that were forgotten. Uh, they also included our main man, Cave Carson, without his cybernetic eye, Congorilla, mm-hmm. uh, The Ray, Rick Flagg Jr. from uh, Suicide Squad, uh, Dolphin from Aquaman, uh, Rip Hunter, Resurrection Man, and Vigilante. I believe this is the, uh, the, cowboy the Western Vigilante, version. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that, was, that was such a weird thing, yeah. you know what I mean? But look, way to, way to keep... Uh... You know, crap on the grave or whatever. I don't know. I know, They don't got to be forgotten. Anyway. (laughs) And we got to talk about a little bit of post-Crisis and Infinite Earth stuff, because that's sort of why, is why this comic was birthed in a sense, you know? I I wouldn't, nothing directly created Animal Man or brought, you know what I mean? But it kind of created a status quo. Uh, During that, of course, worlds lived, worlds died, as was, as they promised would happen. (laughs) Uh, the DC multiverse was scrapped and a new linear universe and timeline was introduced. Earth 2 heroes became the earliest heroes. With duplicates such as Batman and superheroes they existed in both the Golden and Silver Ages, but those were eliminated. They were kind of homogenized. You know, that's something we could talk about that didn't really work every time, but the idea was that this had all happened on the same Earth, essentially. Yeah. Everything back to one Earth. And many of these properties was were revamped and Animal Man was one of them kind of updated you know obviously i think this was a uh low risk kind of thing for dc in yeah. a sense to do so that it, it allowed grant morrison the freedom to uh, go a lot further to with really it. play yeah. yeah and uh we'll mention later but this did end up being a lot longer than they intended absolutely but anyway a lot longer yeah. <laughs> now uh getting right into our story here we have animal man number five the coyote gospel the cover, as we mentioned, is Brian Boland. It depicts Buddy Baker in his Animal Man getup laying down in a crossroad of tire tracks. Um, he's penciled and only uh, partially colored. And we also see a hand with a paintbrush coloring in his leg. So we, we already get a little bit of a, a little bit of a fourth wall breaking here. Yep. Um, we open with a truck driving down a desert road. The driver has picked up a hitchhiker, a young woman named Carrie. Uh, he's trying to instill in her that hitching in the desert might not be the best idea for a young lady. Uh, and his concern is uh, not appreciated. Uh, we learn that this truck driver has a boyfriend named Billy waiting for him at home. He claims that Billy had saved his life and introduced him to Christ. And gave him a silver, uh, a silver cross. A that silver crucifix, be yeah. important to remember, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, they continue their drive and have traded their heavier talk with singing along to the radio. They're singing uh, Roadrunner by Jonathan Richman and the Modern Lovers. This is a really interesting song. Yeah. Originally a seven-inch record in 1972 on Berkeley, California-based Berserkly Records, although Richman and company were from Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, it's really almost like a punk garage song. It's been covered many, many times over the years, mm-hmm. usually by those kind of bands. On February 13th, 2013, then-state representative Marty Walsh introduced a bill to have Roadrunner named Official Rock Song of Massachusetts. <laughs> but Richmond, the guy who wrote it, he was against it. He said, I don't think it deserves to be... The official anything or something like that. So true to his punk roots. Huh? I know exactly. Exactly, that's true. You don't want that. You don't want to have that uh, pl- plaque up in your office. You know, <laughs> selling out to the man. Uh, anyway, while they're cruising along, loops singing along to the song in the road ahead, a strange anthropomorphic straight shape enters into view. 
with the sun beaming into their eyes, the travelers don't even get a good look at it. It's sort of in a silhouette, and it's unclear. It looks like an animal of some kind. Mm-hmm. And they hit it with a badump. Carrie says, We went right over it. Oh, that was horrible. What was it? Was it an animal? The man says, Forget it. Don't look back. Keep your eyes on the road and don't look back. <laughs> Advice for life, I guess. As they pass, we see the mangled carcass of an anthropomorphic coyote. His entire midsection was destroyed. It's it's a pretty gruesome uh, sight. Pretty gory it's, stuff it's here. Very yeah. well rendered here. Uh, he begins to twitch and calls out in pain as his body begins weaving itself back together. Yeah, and a caption narrates this action. It says, "The pain is gigantic. A newly activated nervous system is suddenly jammed with frantic signals, like an overworked switchboard." The creature shudders, weeping. Its pelvic girdle fuses along hairline sutures to cradle rapidly healing organs. A splintered rib that saws back and forth in one lung is withdrawn. The thoracic thoracic cage locks seamlessly. Thanks, Chris. (laughs) The lung reinflates. Trembling, the creature rises. Overhead, cheated vultures wheel into the sunset. Behold, the miracle of the resurrection. And now we see this, the coyote standing in all his glory. He wears a, uh, a like a string necklace with a cylindrical tube tied to it. Yeah, and he's like a humanoid, freaky. Yeah. Coyote too. This isn't this isn't like a you know regular looking coyote. He's standing Quadruped, on two yeah. legs. Yeah, he's funny looking. <laughs> now uh, this uh, we do get a we do get a, uh, a caption saying that this happened one year ago. Yeah. Uh, now we shift scenes over to the Baker home in the present, where Cliff is watching Buddy toss all the meat in t- from their fridge out into the garbage. To which Cliff says, "Dad, this is radical. I mean, what are we supposed to eat?" Buddy replies, "What? What do you mean? What are we supposed to eat? I don't know. Tofu or something, I guess." Tofu. <laughs> Buddy's wife Ellen returns home from work, and she's none too pleased to see her husband tossing out all their groceries. They argue for a bit, with Buddy going off on an animal rights rant that Ellen really doesn't seem to care to hear. Buddy slams the box of animal chunks down on the counter and stomps out. Okay, there, take the damn stuff. Don't expect me home for dinner. And he almost immediately regrets this outburst. As most husbands tend to do. We know how that can be. (laughs) Uh, We rejoin the truck driver in the desert. Well, he's an ex-truck driver now, a year later from the scene we saw. Uh, More on that in a second. He's currently setting up some sticks of dynamite between the rocks. We learn that since running over the weird devil in the desert, he calls it, his life has fallen apart. His lover, Billy, was killed, hit by a truck like two weeks after. Mm -hmm. He then lost his job as a truck, truck driver. His mother died of cancer, and the last straw for him was he learned that that hitchhiker he transported a year ago became a prostitute and then was killed. And now he knows he's got to find and kill the devil. Mm-hmm. And he tracks the coyote to the cliffside, which isn't to say the side of Buddy Baker's son, but the actual geographic formation. <laughs> he takes aim and fires a shot right through the coyote's heart with a choom. The coyote plummets to the ground below and lands in a cloud of dust. Yeah, he kind of tumbles over and over, and the caption reads, The first bullet, a semi-jacketed hollow point, shatters the devil's collarbone and smashes its shoulder blade like a china plate. Briefly, its feet pedal empty air, and then it goes down. An outcrop breaks its spine. A second impact crushes its skull, unhinges its jaw, snaps both legs, and it hits bottom blind and quadriplegic. 
and the man peers over the edge, and he knows right away that the uh, coyote is still alive. Yeah. So he uh, rolls a giant rock off the edge and squishes the coyote real good. So, I mean, uh, you the get man, the idea he's been at this for a while. We're basically, I mean, for a while. If, if you haven't picked it up yet, yeah, this is the coyote roadrunner thing happening, but the, uh, <laughs> the truck driver is the roadrunner. Yes, the, the feet pedaling empty air. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> hitting in a cloud of smoke. Uh, now the man heads down to the ground uh, to finish the devil off with his second and magic bullet. By the time he reaches bottom, the coyote is back on its feet and fully healed from the looks of it. Uh, it's around now that Buddy Baker finally enters the scene. Uh, the man, who's, uh, the, the driver doesn't get named at all during this, does he? I don't believe so. They never yeah, mentioned it. His like, boyfriend does, but we, never, we don't find out who he yeah. is, yeah. Now the man realizes that where they're standing is where he'd rigged that dynamite with a tripwire. A tripwire the coyote is mere inches away from triggering. And uh, he even thinks to himself, but it's a good question, how does one forget setting dynamite? You know, yeah. sort of <laughs> you really should keep a note of that. You know, some kind of a map maybe would help. Maybe. Uh the coyote triggers the tripwire, causing a tremendous explosion which takes it out of both of these characters. Although by the time the smoke clears, the coyote is once more on his feet looking a little disheveled. But uh, he's starting to come back together, you know, it obviously is a regenerating type of thing going on. Buddy lands and heads over to the vacant jeep to investigate. Coyote approaches him and hands him the cylinder from his necklace, which is revealed to be a rolled-up piece of paper. On it is the gospel according to Crafty. Here we learn that Crafty lived in a very Looney Tunes kind of world where the characters are constantly engaging in futile violence. And the art style changes here to depict the more cartoony feel, and it does the job perfectly well as far as it I'm does. concerned. You know, really, really good. Sure. Uh, now, now, Crafty grew tired of the never-ending cycles, and so one day said, "No more." He headed into the desert and boarded an elevator to visit God. God, in this case, is uh, a fella in a chair with a paintbrush by his right hand, and he wears a wristwatch on his left. Yeah, we get like a uh, God's eye view here. We don't yes. get to see the we don't guy see the face himself. Uh, now, Crafty offers a trade. He will make any sacrifice and bear any punishment so long as it results on peace on this world. And God spake thus. <laughs> I don't know how to do God's voice. Uh-oh. Just boom it. <laughs> Just be booming, Chris. That's all. See. Then you must spend eternity on hell in the hell above. While you live and bear the suffering of the world, I will make peace among the beasts. That is my judgment. Very godly. So, yeah. Yes, thank you. And so Crafty was sent to the real world, where pain, <laughs> as he learns, is quite real. Yeah, he seemed to have arrived on Earth like mere moments before that truck driving guy with Carrie had hit him a year ago. Yep. Uh, and he felt immense pain with every uh, temporary death or you know incapacitation. Which is to say, dude dies a lot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a little bit later on in the episode, we're going to talk about another dude who dies a lot. Yeah, I'm kind of uh, connected to this very closely. <laughs> but anyway, we, re we return to Animal Man, who is holding the gospel, and it's all just chicken scratch. You can't read any of it. You know, we got this whole story, but he doesn't know what it's about. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, our truck driver friend is hiding out behind a large croc. He, tr rock croc. He has loaded his <laughs> magic bullet, which is made from the melted-down silver crucifix given to him by Billy. He takes aim and fires it right into Crafty's heart. This time, Crafty feels no pain. The truck driver collapses in tears, certain that he'd just saved the world. Crafty lay dying in the intersection with Buddy kneeling over him. The pool of blood is colorless until a large... Until, whoop, 
<laughs> until Sorry. a large paintbrush enters the panel and paints it red. Yep, and that is the the, the, the end, folks. Bleep, bleep, bleep. He's also, if you, you probably you know could have guessed it, but he's also in the shape of being crucified as he's lying down. Yeah. Not a very uh, subtle allegory going on here, but not at all. It was very, it was very. uh, You know, I I enjoyed the issue. I had read it years ago, but I hadn't read it in a while. Hmm. Uh, One thing I like about it is, like a lot of older comics, it's just a story done in one. You know, this is true. We didn't need to spend an issue in in Looney Tunes Town. We get you get the idea. You know what I mean? Like, just let's see a big panel. Let's tell the story, and we can just wrap it up. But anyway, uh, there's more to this uh, series. What happened after this uh, issue? The Coyote Gospels looked at as the first proper issue of Animal Man. Uh, the first four issues were more straightforward superhero story to test the waters for this character. And this is actually originally planned to be a standalone four-issue miniseries. Mm-hmm. Graham Morrison was remaining on the title to issue 26, August 1990. Some of the highlights from his run were an invasion tie-in that started like right after this issue, too. Yeah. Uh, and, a modernized, and a modernized origin story. A battle with Mirror Master and the appearance of a mysterious stranger at the Baker home. Some animal rights stuff, which was actually going on in Graham Morrison's real life at the real time. Life, yeah. uh, use of peyote, which gives Buddy visions of the pre-crisis DCU. And the scene in which Buddy looks directly at the reader and proclaims that he can see us. Probably the one and only time this trick worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Despite how many times it's been repeated. They tried a lot, but yeah, it worked. Now, uh, Buddy's family is killed, uh, hmm. so he steals a time machine to fix things, and here we learn that that mysterious stranger you mentioned was actually Buddy himself. Um, that old trick, the, you know. <laughs> why not? <laughs> we get the intro- the reintroduction of the psycho parrot. Pi- psycho parrot. Jesus. The psycho pirate, <laughs> who last we saw was locked in Arkham Asylum, driven mad uh, from the events of Crisis on Infinite Earths. At this point, he's the only one who remembers. Uh, when Animal Man visits... Uh, the pirate asks if the Wolfman sent him, mm-hmm. uh, probably referring to Marv Wolfman. Uh, the two actually discuss continuity revisions, and there's <laughs> some really awesome art here, including a cover, another cover by Boland, where uh, classic no oh, longer right. continuity comics just pour out of the pirate's yeah. head. Yeah, oh, it's, it's great. great. It is. Uh, Animal Man visits Limbo, where he meets many characters relegated to Limbo, <laughs> including Sunshine Superman, some of our favorites here, Angel Love, the Inferior Five, and the Green Team, Boy yeah. Millionaires. This is like these are like the people that couldn't even make it on the Forgotten Heroes, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. the substitute Forgotten Heroes over here. Mm-hmm. Poor guys. Uh, eventually in Animal Man, and at, you know, pretty much at the end of his run, Animal Man meets Grant Morrison. Uh, this is his final story, is an, is an issue-long conversation between himself, the writer, and Buddy. Morrison apologizes for everything he's put Buddy through, but he's not buying it all. And so he's given his own comic to read. Uh, Grant run, Grant's run ends with him showing mercy to the character he tortured and decides to make much of it a dream, including the death of Buddy's family. Of particular interest, the writer character was added to the DC universe. He accidentally becomes trapped in a comic book universe and is ultimately killed by a werebeast in issue number 58 of Suicide Squad, uh, October 1991, which I remember actually being a... Very jam-packed issue. Yes, it was. Yeah, uh, it was part of the War of the Gods uh, miniseries. There was a tie-in to War of the Gods, and, I believe. And like there were just like a, a dozen or more people on the Suicide Squad, you know what I mean, or affiliated. Yeah. I was like, wow, well, quite a squad you got here. <laughs> no longer a tight Black Ops team. It's more like a, an army rolling through. Yeah. Uh, anyway, with uh, Morrison's departure from Animal Man, DC handed the reins over to Peter Milligan, 
He wrote issues 27 to 32, September 1990 to February 91. Milligan's run begins with Buddy awakening from a coma in a world he does not recognize. His wife divorced him. He couldn't control his powers. He eats a horse. There's quantum theory stuff. <laughs> Buddy commits suicide, which somehow returns him to the real DC universe. Uh, there okay. we go. Yeah. <laughs> From there, we go to uh, Tom Veach. Veach? Veach? I think it's Veach. I think I've heard Veach now a few times Let's around, around the world. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Tom Veach, he, uh, he writes issues 33 through 50. It was March 91 through August of 92. Uh, Buddy's powers are still out of whack. He actually winds up killing every single animal in the San Diego Zoo. Nice. And so the Bakers move to Vermont. Got to get out of the scene. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, the, the shift from superhero to avatar or guardian of nature begins here. Uh, he's told by a Native American shaman or shaman that he is part of a group called the Animal Masters, which also included Vixen. I think Beast Boy was part of it briefly as well. Sure. Um, his run ends with a battle between the Masters and a character called Antigon, or... Antigone, I don't know. know. Uh, (laughs) After which, Buddy learns that his daughter Maxine is also an animal master, and she is also developing powers of her own. Yeah, which actually plays in much later. Uh, We'll get to that, Mm -hmm. though. Jamie Delano and the Shift to Vertigo. Uh, Issues 51 to 1979, Jamie Delano wrote those. September 92 to January 1995. Becomes a Vertigo title with issue number 57, March 93. And all of the trade paperbacks are... All of these are under Vertigo now, I'm pretty sure, right? They are, yeah. um, This run begins with the death of Buddy Baker, <laughs> the most dynast man around. Uh, he's hit by a car of a relative who kidnapped Buddy's son, Cliff. Buddy's life essence survives, and it begins to reincarnate itself in various animals. During this time, Animal Man discovers the red, which is like the meaty equivalent to Swamp Thing's green. Uh, Buddy returns to life as a creepy hybrid animal critter, but is quickly able to return to his normal form. Maxine dies and is reincarnated. Sure. Buddy, you know, she, she inherited the ability to die many times from, <laughs> you know, from her father. Um, Buddy and Maxine establish a religion and church, the Life Power Church of Maxine, and then Buddy dies again. <laughs> yes. Uh, the... Uh... The volume of Animal Man wraps up with a run by Jerry Prosser. He wrote issues 80 through 89, February of 95 through November 95. Hey, it starts with Buddy coming back to life. (laughs) Again, uh, he's got a different appearance now. He's got black and white striped hair. Uh, Doesn't look a whole lot like the Animal Man we know. Mm -hmm. Um, During this run, Maxine is abducted by gray aliens, but is returned home pretty quickly after just being probed or whatever. I don't know. Very 90s kind of story right here. Sure, sure. Now, Buddy has a second daughter with a woman named Annie from the Church of Maxine. And that's how this uh, volume ends. Uh, The child is called the human incarnation of the collective world's soul. Yep. Well, what are you going to do? Jerry Conway wrote the uh, Last Days of Animal Man miniseries, July 2009 to December 2009. Story takes place in 2024. Animal Man dies. Yet again, that's right. (laughs) And then the new 52 Jeff Lemire run, uh, that was a seven-year story called The Rot, pretty much, which actually pulled from a lot of the things that we're, uh, were left behind. Maxine is, again, like the budding avatar of the Red. And uh, a bunch of other stuff that you have to read it to believe it. There's a crossover with the Swamp Thing that's pretty good. Uh, his son Cliff also dies during this run, and Buddy Baker learns to adopt the abilities of interstellar animals, which mm-hmm. I thought was an interesting turn, kind of takes him to that Swamp Thing. You know, he did the same thing. 
Yep. Um, but then it literally ends like an issue later. It just stops. <laughs> it yeah. just stops right there. It's like, oh man, just when it was getting kind of like interesting. <laughs> right after we got out of the the rot that lasted for it, it went on so long, and and to be honest, Animal Man kind of was having trouble getting off the ground after there were you know it wasn't a bad comic but it was never no. really grabbing me at least um no. but yeah right then i was like oh awesome he's gonna have like you know alien powers but uh, he went away wasn't back, to be back in the box with you buddy <laughs> now with the uh, animal man out of the way let's uh go back into uh mr morrison uh he wrote saint swithin's day this was uh, originally published in trident number one through four with art by paul grist who he does uh what jack jack staff oh yeah Kane, I, I think um this was published during uh from august 89 through february of 1990 it's a story of a, an angry young northern Englishman during Margaret, Margaret Thatcher's time as prime minister. And so the kid decides he wants to kill her. And he plans to assassinate her during a public appearance on July 15th, which just happens to be St. Swithin's Day. Wow. Uh, a little background on that. Swithin, with a U, uh, was the Bishop of Winchester who died on July 2nd, 862 or 863. Maybe it was 864. <laughs> or was it 865 AD? Yeah. We've, we've got the date, but not the year. Uh, it was around. It was around then, close enough. You know, they they didn't they didn't split hairs for on years no. in those days. <laughs> no, he was uh, posthumously looked at as a miracle worker. It was traditionally said that the weather on his feast day, which again is July fifteenth, would continue for the next forty days. Uh, the story, as you would imagine, was quite controversial, and it provoked a complaint from uh, conservative parliament member MP Teddy Taylor, uh, because uh, he was a member of Thatcher's shadow cabinet serving as her shadow secretary for the, of the state for Scotland. Hmm. Apropos of nothing, Teddy Taylor would find himself the victim of an Ali G spoof interview in 2002. Well, that's some uh, British politics. Pretty pretty crazy. You get to join a shadow <laughs> cabinet. What is this, Harry Potter? Or what's I going know. On? <laughs> Good gracious. Well, you know, so he, he got into some controversy with that story. Uh, you know, had a lot of people angry at him. So he decided to go a little lighter next time and sure. do The New Adventures of Hitler. This was in Crisis number 46 through 49, published June, July 1990, the cover dates, I guess. This also had art by Steve Yowell, though started in Cut magazine in 1989. Cut folded before the story could be completed. It's somewhat loosely based on claims by sister-in-law Bridget Elizabeth Downing Hitler that Adolf Hitler lived with her family in Liverpool during 1912 to 1913 to dodge Austrian conscription. She also claims to be responsible for Hitler's distinctive facial hairstyle, the uh, little push broom, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, the story features Adolf as a useless layabout, almost clownish. He's an embarrassment to his family, re relies on fortune tellers for advice, and is depicted as a mooch who still thinks himself above those around him. This, as is becoming routine for Morrison's satire, was fairly controversial comic story even leading to accusations that Morrison himself was a Nazi. It seems like the satire was lost on a lot of people, which is not uncommon. Then no, and now. it's more common than not. Yeah. Um, another, uh, another thing he did was uh, the Doom Patrol. Uh, following the events of the invasion crossover, uh, Grant Morrison took over Doom Patrol with issue number 19. This is cover date, February 1989, with Richard Case on art. Uh, indeed, much of uh, Inven Invasion, penned by uh, prior Doom Patrol author Paul Kupperberg, seems to lend itself to setting up Morrison's run. Yeah. He uh, <laughs> drops a Dorothy Spinner in there. He kills off some of the characters that yeah, he probably they, didn't want to deal with. He, he had slipped Dorothy Spinner in earlier, but he, he killed two characters, threw another one in a coma, another one vanished. Karma, like, <laughs> left 
the group. They, it would all happen like in this. It almost like the crossover was to set up this Doom Patrol. It was to run. facilitate this yeah. run. Yeah. <laughs> um, now this uh, it goes without saying. This is one of the best remembered runs on this title. It's quite surreal and deals with very uh, many cultural topics and art theory. It also included and uh, actually ended with, yep. or, or following his main run, uh, it ended with Doom Force Special Number 1. It was July of 1992, and uh, it's one of the best send-ups to the 1990s extreme comics aesthetic. It's very—it uh, it would fit in on a shelf next to uh, Youngblood. Except, uh, it's, it's really, it really is funny, uh, you know, and uh, it's, it is included in the trades. It's in the last trade, is, yeah. but—, but... It's worth looking at by itself if you Definitely. don't want to get it, dive into the whole thing. Just the uh, parody is funny. And we got to say that none of the issues that Grant wrote were under the Vertigo banner, but all the uh, republications and reprints are under yeah. the Vertigo banner. Yeah, they all got drawn into that. We should we should get into like that, you know, cr- turno- turnover at some point. But uh, we, I'm sure we will. A lot of these titles, Swamp wheelhouse. Thing yeah. did it. Yeah, a lot of these guys did it. Um, Morrison returned to Batman with the gothic story arc in issues 6 through 10 of the Batman title, Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, which was, at, you know, sort of like stories of the Batman's earlier years, at least initially. Uh, in the story, Mr. Whisper attempts to remove a 600-year-old curse, which is to send him to self to hell, uh, by murdering all of Gotham City and capturing their souls in a cathedral. Story, uh, story yeah, it was, it was a pretty good plan. Story has been collected in trade paperback format. Yeah, recently reissued. I saw it out there. Morrison retooled Kid Eternity for DC in the early 1990s with artist Duncan Fagredo, which sure. would spit out into a pretty subpar ongoing series written by Ann Nocenti. In 1991, Morrison wrote Bible John, a forensic meditation for Fleetway's Crisis, uh, drawn by fellow member of the Mixers, his old band, Daniel Vallely. Based on the crimes of the serial killer Bible John, it utilized the Dadaist cut-up technique popularized by William S. Burroughs in which linear text is literally cut into pieces and rearranged into new text. It shares some similarities with Alan Moore's work, From Hell, which, for better or for worse, invites comparisons between the two. And even Alan Moore has made those comparisons. You don't say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, in 1993, Morrison and uh, fellow Glaswegian comic writer Mark Miller and John Smith were asked to reinvigorate 2000 AD for an eight-week run called The Summer Offensive. Morrison would write uh, Judge Dredd and Really and Truly and co-wrote the controversial Big Dave with Miller. Uh, some Big Dave stories included... Saddam Hussein trying to take over the world by turning everyone gay. Hey. In his world, in his words, turning them into poofs. That's a, um, that does somehow lessen, lessen it, does it, it, doesn't it? Oh, the it's poofs, cute. that's nice. Then. <laughs> it's cute. Yeah. Uh, now, he also has a story depicting the British royal family as drunken sex fiends. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and also Big Dave putting together a soccer or you know football team comprised of disabled children to play against a German team coached by, guess who? Yep. Uncle Adolf, once more. Yeah, we can always pull him out of the sack whenever you want to <laughs> make people, you know, straighten up their neckties more. Absolutely. Um, now, DC Comics has launched its Vertigo imprint in 1993, and they published several of Morrison's creator-owned projects through the years. Uh, some of them, maybe I don't know if this is all of them, but I definitely uh, took them the steampunk miniseries Sebastian O. They published the mystery play. Kill Your Boyfriend with artist Philip Bond, originally published as a Vertigo Voices one-shot in 1995. Flex Mentalo, a Doom Patrol spinoff with art by Frank Quitely in 1996. And uh, there was other stuff after that, too. I, I believe The Invisibles was Vertigo. 
Yeah, we'll, we're going to get we're going to get to that eventually. Our own little line. Um, return briefly to DC Universe superheroes with short-lived Aztec: The Ultimate Man, co-written with Mark Millar, with art by and Stephen Harris. Yeah, he would also be tasked with uh, relaunching the JLA, and you bring back the uh, the Big Seven, the Magnificent Seven version that was uh, in 1996. Uh, curiously, bringing the series back to its fundamentals for once. Uh, I think a lot of people consider that to be the purest JLA, and it was like the least seen JLA. Yeah, and, and, um, and done by the guy known for revamping weirdo characters. You know, absolutely. But... Now, uh, in the eyes of many, this had some of the best written depictions of Electric Blue Superman. Uh, they said that the, you know, Electric Blue was finally done right here. Um, also, uh, Morrison is often credited with legitimizing Kyle Rayner as Green Lantern. Um, he would uh, write several issues of The Flash with Mark Miller. Uh, this is issues 130 through 138, which has been released in trade under the name Emergency Stop. Mm. Interestingly, it features a—this is Wally West as The Flash. Uh, it features him uh, confined to a wheelchair. Wow. Huh. I've got it. I, I I think I only made it halfway through it the last time I tried, though. Um, he'd also write DC One Million, which was 1998's crossover event. All the books cover dated November 1998 were thrust in the 853rd century, which would be the century in which DC would publish actual one million issues. Uh, you know, unless, of course, they did nonstop reboots back to number one, right? Hmm. Oh, that's oops. <laughs> uh, in this series, he introduced the concept of Le- Justice Legions. So he had yeah. like Justice Legion Alpha, which was the JLA, and Justice Legion Beta was the Titans. It was. It, I think there were like twenty-four. I think it was the entire Greek alphabet had a uh, had, had a Justice Legion. Legion. Wow, that's yeah. uh, it's 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 a pretty heady book. I've never read all of them, but I've seen some of these issues. Uh, and the only the only collection is this massive omnibus that just like seems too daunting to. It could be a slog, yeah. Hold and deal with, but you know, I, it's something I, I do want to check out. Also, during this time, I don't know if we, I don't think we mentioned it here. He did a couple issues of Swamp Thing with Mark Millar that uh, he did, yeah. Those also have been collected elsewhere. He uh, oh, here we go, and produced three volumes of the Invisibles for Vertigo. This is considered to be his most personal work. It's quite possibly his densest. I have a lot of trouble with it, personally Me too. speaking. Produced, produced this during what he claims was the only time in his life that he ever used drugs. The series was somewhat influenced by Morrison's own practice of chaos magic, even once featuring a letters page that encouraged readers to engage in simultaneous masturbation in order to empower a sigil and boost sales on the flagging book. Or something like that. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> but for those interested, chaos magic sometimes uses sigils with the tenet uh, that belief in and of itself is a tool. Uh, so an active magical force Just the belief that something exists or works mm-hmm. So remember that next time Your favorite comic book slinks down the sales charts yeah. uh, You're and, not and collectively <laughs> Masturbating enough I guess and, and don't think too hard about how planes stay in the air Yeah really Shikes <laughs> He also released uh, JLA Earth 2 with Frank Whiteley in 2000, which always confused me when I saw it because it featured the crime syndicate from Earth 3. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's you know, it's because it's an OGN, really, you know what I mean? So yes. I guess they kind of dumbed it down, but it made it more confusing, yeah. Well, yeah, because uh, this being post-crisis and pre-infinite crisis, uh, the quick and dirty here is that there are only two two universes, which is, you know, the matter universe and the antimatter universe. Yeah. So, you know, the, the crisis, uh, the, the crisis syndicate, the crime syndicate, <laughs> are from that antimatter universe. Uh, Grant would have a falling out with DC Warner Brothers, uh, feeling that much of the plot for the 1999 science fiction film, The Matrix, was lifted from the Invisibles. And so he went to play in Marvel for a little while. Sure. 
Uh, he wrote the six-part Marvel Boy series, and uh, as far as I know, Marvel Boy is one of the characters currently swallowed up in Marvel's attempt to make us care about the Inhumans. Yeah, I think he's got his own title, like for the first time since this. Uh, oh, I'm run, sure. It's... I believe. Um, I, I'm I'm pretty sure it'll be a uh, it'll be a miniseries by the end of the year. Yeah, I have a feeling, but we'll see. <laughs> Now, this book garnered a bit of attention due to a cryptic comment made by Joe Quesada and some Wizard Magazine speculatory fun. Uh, early in the Marvel Ultimate Universe life, lifetime here, uh, Quesada made an offhanded remark that Ultimate Spider-Man number one was not the first book to have occurred in the Ultimate Universe. Uh, people went crazy looking for hints and clues, and uh, popular opinion became that Marvel Boy might be the first. And naturally, nobody said anything to the contrary. Uh, it wasn't the case, and as far as we can tell, Ultimate Spider-Man number one was, in fact, the first Ultimate book, for all that matters now or wherever. Yeah, I'd say he never clarified his statement. He just let people yeah. go bang. That was nice of him. <laughs> um, Graham Morrison also wrote Fantastic Four one two three four with art by Jay Lee, which yeah, yeah. not so good. Says uh, Chris. <laughs> uh, this I do began New X Men with Frank Quitely, uh, who drew it for the most part in two thousand two. This changed the dynamic of the mutant books going forward until he left and they wiped away everything that he'd done. Uh, <laughs> but during his run, the mutants had something of a baby boom, and Homo Superior's numbers exploded into an actual visible percentage of the population. This was a story that was meant to be read more than once. A big reveal toward the end managed to be both surprising and meticulously telegraphed throughout the whole thing. It's really a well done. Uh, it's great. It's, it's really something. And, and I don't think you need to be. A super X Men, you know, fan to no. to roll with it. You kind of, you know, it kind of starts you off on the ground. Starts you off on the ground running. I'll put it that way. You get, you should get the idea of mutants teams, but you don't need to know everything. No, uh, he left Marvel acrimoniously and without giving any real notice. A Marvel editor in chief Joe Casada found out he was leaving after DC announced he signed an exclusive deal at a convention. Hence, as soon as Grant's final issue hit, Marvel bent over backwards trying to undo everything he'd written. And if you thought the X books were confusing before, wow! Try you know trying to pull apart Grant Morrison's knots must have been really something. Uh, Grant's Marvel story doesn't end here, however. Marvel would eventually publish a previously unpublished Miracle Man story written by Grant as part of a Miracle Man Annual Number One in 2014. Yeah, it was only like a uh, it was like a four page story, but uh, it, it was what the book was sold on. It was uh, one of those five or six dollar annuals, but. It only featured four or five pages of Morrison. Yeah, and that, and the rest of it was all reprints or something. I believe so. Uh, yeah, well. um, what are you gonna do? Uh, he, uh, you know, he signed his DC exclusive contract and uh, started doing some work at Vertigo. In 2002, he launched The Filth, drawn by Chris Weston and Gary Erskine, which I have never been able to make it through. Yeah, this, uh, it's pretty filthy, isn't it? It's not. Yeah, it's it's that's a good word for it. Yeah. Uh, in 2004, there were a trio of Vertigo miniseries by Morrison. We have Sea Guy, which is sort of a commentary on corporations, consumerism, and brand loyalty. I think his like enemy is Mickey Eye or something like that, which uh, is you know based off of another Mickey, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also We Three, which is kind of a uh, it's kind of like a sci-fi uh, Milo and Otis or something. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's a bunch of animals sent into space, right? And they, uh... it's like they're armed, like they they they're they're given, that's like, right, yeah. Yeah, and then they have to find their way home or something. It's it's uh, got uh, uh, quietly art on it. And I remember there was one page that had something like like several hundred tiny panels on it. 
It was just amazing. It, um, it's yeah, it it's, like, it's it's I haven't read it in so long. I remember it. It really is interesting. It is sort of like you know touching, especially if you're an animal lover. At the end, absolutely. it's messed up. Yeah, and we did mention, I think the last time we three came up, that the rumor was that that was going to be initially a an X-Men uh, a miniseries. Huh. This is a rumor, of course, uh, because uh, the Weapon Plus program had a Weapon 3, which was uh, experiments done on animals. So Weapon 3, we three. It's, I think people... I think people, you know, you see what you want to see. Uh, there was also Viminarama, <laughs> which was a, uh, I think it was a, I think it was Middle Eastern. I, I've got it. I've never read it. Oh but yeah. I think it was like a, it was like sort of a romance comic uh, with a, with a, uh, like a Bollywood type of flair to it. This is what I only know about this one through the research. I, I, I remember I've seen, I have week three. I remember I saw Sea Guy. I don't think I ever heard of. Venomarama. I thought they were the people that did walk like an Egyptian, but I guess <laughs> that was the Bengals. Oh, you're whoops. thinking of vacation? Oh, right? that's what. No, yeah, that's or a... Venus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Sieg, I did have a uh, sequel miniseries called uh, like the uh, the something of Mickey Eye or something like that. Oh. Um, in 2005, Morrison would write uh, Seven Soldiers of Victory, which was seven interlinked four-issue miniseries with two bookend volumes. It was going to be 30—it is 30 issues in total. Uh, it features the uh, Manhattan Guardian, Mr. Miracle, this is the Shiloh Norman version, uh, Clary and the Witch Boy, the Bulletia, Frankenstein, Zatanna, and Shining Knight. Uh, it was interesting that these stories were written in such a way that they could be read as standalone or as part of the overall event without losing a whole lot. Yeah, it's really cleverly done. It's hard to explain. It and it, it's, it's very hard to explain. <laughs> you know, it's 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 collected at least two different ways that I know of, and neither of them are really useful for reading the story as a whole. You kind of you kind of yeah. need to have the singles and be able to flip around. But uh, it's it's really it's an interesting project, and it's uh, something to check out. So uh, around this time, DC was moving into their next phase, or depending on who you ask, returning to a previous one with the mega event Infinite Crisis. This uh, would just reestablish the multiverse. DC executive Dan DiDio asked him to assist sorting out the DC universe when the dust settled. Morrison was one of the writers, along with Mark Wade, Jeff Johns, and Greg Rucka, of the year-long weekly series 52. Beginning in December 2005, DC began All-Star Superman, drawn by Frank Quitely. This series won the Eisner Award for Best New Series in 2006 and the Best Continuing Series Eisner Award in 2007, and it is great. Yeah. Uh, in 2006, Morrison began writing Batman for DC with issue number 655, September cover date. Uh, he'd write Batman sort of and then some, with some short breaks until 2013 through Batman and Robin and then Batman Incorporated. Which eventually went into the new 52 Plus there was Bruce Wayne, The Road Home uh, This introduced Bat Damian Wayne as Batman's son And killed him later uh, Killed Batman twice In a sense uh, <laughs> It's hard to, hard to Actually in a way neither time oh, Either you know because he, he came back Both times Twice and never um, He put Dick Grayson under the cowl for a time uh, With Damian as Robin, Robin. Uh, this, That was pretty darn good run right there uh, he brought back Batman back through time when he got shot with the Omega Sanction uh, during Final Crisis, and he introduced the Batman Incorporated concept, which is sort of like internationally, international Batman groups funded by Wayne. Absolutely, and unfortunately, as you mentioned, this run would hit a sizable speed bump with yeah. the, new, the new 52 initiative here. I, you know what, what's interesting though is that if you read just Batman Incorporated, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not so bad. But it just no. had nothing to do with what was going on in the new 52. They're obviously not just letting all. him finish his run. 
Uh, mm-hmm. It was it was it was bad. It didn't didn't bode well for it. But anyway, no. Uh, he would write Final Crisis in 2008, and he explains here. Uh, I pitched a huge huge crossover event called Hyper Crisis, which didn't happen for various reasons. Some of Hyper Crisis went into Seven Soldiers. Some went into All Star Superman. Some went into Fifty Two, and some found a home in Final Crisis. This is a pretty dense and confusing story, yeah. which I don't think we can sum up all that quickly. Um, maybe it'll be a discussion for another time if we can maybe find some annotations. Yeah, something like that. But it's you, you're the one that, that schooled <laughs> me on the fact that it was uh, two issues were cut from it, right? It was planned to be. Yeah, they, they pulled some stuff out and then they did like a uh, they did like a two month Superman 3D issue. Yeah, uh, two. Yeah, it was a. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of weird. There was an editorial it. problem with this, but yeah, I mean, yeah. Hopefully, maybe we'll get to it someday. It's it's quite something. Hmm. In 2010, he did Joe the Barbarian with Sean Murphy for Vertigo, and in the story, Joe is a diabetic young boy who begins to hallucinate a fantasy world populated with his toys and other fantasy characters when he st- stops taking his medication. He then wrote action comics with Rags Morales on art at the beginning of the new 52. This returned him kind of to his to the roots of a more brash, less powered Golden Age version of the character. We, we also call him a t-shirt and jeans version. Um, his involvement, and in, yeah. although you, I guess you could say that about Connor Kent now that I really think about it. And, and boots. <laughs> boots are important, too. Uh, yes, his, his involvement and unwillingness to share plot with George Perez on Superman led to some bad blood and Perez walking off his title, Superman, I think before issue one came out, I believe. I think he wrote that and walked. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty quick. Because mm. um, that started that whole revolving door of uh, Superman writers. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you, um, you know, this that Action Comics run is somewhat worthwhile to read. But again, it has mm. nothing to do with what was going on in New 52 at all. It's sort of like its, its own little thing. Yeah, yeah, it's very weird. Now, uh, Morrison was featured in the My Chemical Romance music video. See here, one, two, three. Four. There's a lot of nas in this. Na na na, and then, then in parentheses, na na na, na na na, na na na, and also sing from their 2010 album Danger Days: True Lives of the Fabulous Killjoys. Uh, Grant Morrison talking with gods. A two-hour documentary on the life and works of Grant Morrison was distributed by Halo Eight Entertainment in 2010. That's where a lot of his childhood anecdotes came from. From the beginning of this episode. Oh wow. Um, it was on Hulu, but I don't think it is anymore. It's it's worth checking out if you uh, if you're interested in Grant. Uh, I I gotta warn you that a lot of it is basically his peers filleting him. Um, I mean, they, you know, uh, the title Grant Morrison talking with gods kind of tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, don't don't go in just looking much. for him being uh, very humble, <laughs> affable, yeah. Yeah, humble. Um, he also wrote uh, the book Super Gods: Our World in the Age of the Superhero, and that was published by Random House in July of 2011. In uh, September 2012, Morrison Con was held at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. Curated by Morrison, it featured a number of comics industry guests, including Robert Kirkman, Derek Robertson, Jason Aaron, Jim Lee, Gerard Way, Jonathan Hickman, Frank Quitely, J.H. Williams III, and Chris Burnham. So that must have been quite a quite a weird event. Um, sure. Made a member of the most excellent order of the Royal British Empire in 2012 by the Queen of England. This is like the first step on your journey to becoming an actual knight when he would be Sir... Grant Morrison. Mm-hmm. That's that's but this this is beginning that route. We'll see how where he goes from here. And uh, he produced the nine part uh, series Multiversity in two, four, 2014, 
and 2015, and he's currently the editor-in-chief of Heavy Metal Magazine. Mm-hmm. Now, back uh, back on the art side, here we got Chaz Truog. Truog. <laughs> One of those. Uh, after Animal Man, he would draw a couple of uh, Jurassic Park comics for Topps Comics in 1994. That was Jurassic Park Raptors Attack number two in April and Jurassic Park Adventures number five in September. As mentioned above, he drew the uh, 10 part Chiarosco. Chiar- How are we saying that? Chiaroscuro? That sounds, I don't know. This is the Leonardo Leonardo da Vinci. I can't even say that. (laughs) This is the Leonardo da Vinci story for Vertigo that was published throughout uh, 95 and 96. He drew the original graphic novel Geronimo, The Last Apache Warrior for Moonstone Publishing in 2005. He appeared in a couple of what he calls low-budget indie films, including Go to Hell in 1999, where he plays Polo McCrimmon and... A Hell Palace bartender. He plays two guys in that. And also Planetfall in 2005, where he plays Rusty Arnonson. Most recently, he played a dead body in 2010's The Mansion Detective. And he's an extra in 2016's Vorking, which we beg you not to Google if you have people nearby. Oh, man. Or even if you're alone. Don't don't Google that. If you know what Vor is, uh, don't, don't Google that. Um... In addition to his comics work, Truog is also an accomplished and talented painter, sculptor, and sculptor. And he's not a sculptor; he's a sculptor <laughs> and a commercial artist. And um, it sounds like he's a huge actor too. I mean, goodness! I don't. Is he a bigger, you know, actor of weird films, or is he a bigger comic book artist? I don't know. No, I made the mistake of uh, googling Four King, and uh, you go to the website, and a video automatically starts playing. Oh, I hate that. Especially if it's yeah, the kind of video uh, I think it might be. <laughs> especially if there are people around. And it's yeah, like... that's not good. Yeah, not not on, not on the library computer, folks. Make sure. No. So, um, you know, the, we were thinking about what we wanted to talk about that this book would lead to. A lot of a lot of things that kind of touched that were possible, mm. like the crisis we could have gone into, and even weirdo characters like Psycho Pirate and Animal Man and stuff, but. I think what Animal Man is best remembered for is the breaking of the fourth wall at the end of this when Grant Morrison speaks yeah. directly to Buddy Baker and, and also directly to the reader in that way, and Buddy does address the, you know, can see the reader in another issue. So we thought about different times that comics had broken the fourth wall. And uh, just to start, I got to give a nod to the dozens of Golden Age heroes and, and comics that ended their stories by with the hero turning to the reader to explain, you know, criminals are cowards, and you can beat the tar out of them if you take away their guns and drink your milk and buy war bonds. <laughs> and also how all those old issues of Superman would end with Clark Kent giving the reader a, a nice knowing wink. Exactly, yeah. Like, like I can, But if you think about that, is he saying, I can see you, you know what I mean? It's like, yikes. Pretty much. You know? yep. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Didn't expect that with my dime, you know, a little existential no. fear, you know? <laughs> Now, another uh, another character who did this was the ambush bug here. Uh, first appeared in DC Comics Presents number 52 from December 1982 uh, by Paul Kupperberg and Keith Giffen. Uh, the Superman and the New Doom Patrol in Negative Woman Goes Berserk. Uh, here, Ambush Bug is a chaos-inducing supervillain that can teleport using robotic micro-insects. He, uh, he also murders the district attorney in this issue. Yeah, which uh, later later is kind of an unexpected thing for him to do, but, you know, there Yes. 
Now, after getting under Superman's skin a few times, Ambush Bug decides he wants to become a hero. And, they, you know, predictably, hilarious, <laughs> hilarious uh, results uh, ensued there. Uh, he had two miniseries and, and a one-off in the 1980s that expanded the character. Uh, a four-part self-titled series in 1985 written by Keith Giffen and Robert Lauren Fleming and also penciled by Giffen. There was the one-shot Ambush Bug stocking stuffer, uh, cover date February 1986 by the same fellas. And uh, Son of Ambush Bug, which was a six-parter in 1986 by the same guy. Yep, they kind of ran the Ambush Bug show, I guess. Yes. <laughs> now, in these, it's revealed that Ambush Bug is, uh, is really a guy named Erwin Schwab who got locked into his green skin suit. Uh, he's also aware he's in a comic, which leads to, you know, parody and satire. The, uh, uh, later on, much later on, actually, a six-issue miniseries, Ambush Bug Year None, came out in 2008. Uh, same guys, maybe maybe less funny result. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember that one, like, it was, like, going to be a five-issue, then it was a six-issue, then it was a five-issue, then it was a seven-issue. It was yeah, the very ki- strange The kind of humor that it, that it evinces, it may have, you know, that may have been... Past its prime, Part you know what it. I mean? Because, because <laughs> you know, when you and I have both gone back to the old Amish Bug comics, I know you reviewed at least the Christmas stocking stuffer on your site. I did, uh, and I don't know, and you know, I, those are some of the few single comics that I do hold on to because I love them. But you know, it's it's nostalgia. They haven't aged as well. I still laugh no. at them, but I'm laughing for the you know kid in 1986 that read them. I'm not laughing <laughs> for anything current. Uh, yeah, no, I'll still laugh at the uh, the pistache to. Uh... To the McFarlane Spider-Man, where he used the word advantageous about 700 times on a page. There you go. You know what I mean? That was funny. Something's always classic, yeah. (laughs) Now, uh, Ambush Bug would eventually join the Doom Patrol during uh, the Keith Giffen and Matthew Clark run, which is, what, volume five, I believe. Uh Uh-huh. From uh, 2009 to uh, the very end of the old DC Universe in 2011. And then he became a reporter for the Channel 52 News. The, the, the basically the, the backups. I can't even. It's like the direct currents of the of the new 52. Pretty much. Beginning. Yeah. Uh, that I hated that so much. It was awful. Why did they do that? It, it was like he's a funny character. I don't understand why yeah. you would put him in this totally stale, bland. Uh, reporter position, anyway. Yeah, with, with Bethany Snow and the Calendar Man. I mean, that was the uh, the part of the shtick was, I guess, these were like l- lesser used heroes, but you couldn't have picked a worse one for that role, you know? Like, yeah, I would have picked even even Merry Man from the Inferior Five sure. or something. But <laughs> anyway, so that was a big one. But you know, the, here's a character that actually came out before Ambush Bug, but didn't really break the fourth wall until after Ambush Bug, which is why yes. I placed her here. That's She Hulk. She debuted in Savage She-Hulk number one in February 1980 by Stan Lee and John Buscema. Stan created the character because after the success of the $6 million man spinoff television show, The Bionic Woman, he reasoned that the producers of the Incredible Hulk television show, they might create a Lady Hulk, and they probably would have uh, if he hadn't done it first. Probably. And basically, they wanted to use it. He wanted them to have to pay Marvel. Um, The story is Jennifer Walters is Bruce Banner's cousin. She gets a blood transfusion. Voila. She thinks she's in a car accident, right? And not the, the thing? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Well, whatever it is. She, she gets a blood transfusion. She gets a dose of the Hulk in her. Uh, Stan wrote only this one issue. He, I guess he just had to do it for the mm-hmm. copyright reasons. Now, there was actually... He wanted to create a credit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that too. Um, there's a, there was a <laughs> couple of iterations I kind of glossed over. She joined the Avengers for a time. There was actually another a Savage She-Hulk series that ran in the 80s uh oh i'm sorry sensational she-hulk in the 80s 
Uh, she was even hanging out with the, with the Fantastic Four for a little while. She yep. was in there. But the, uh, germane to this discussion in 1989, John Byrne wrote and drew issues one through eight of Sensational She-Hulk Volume 2, the, which was her second mm-hmm. solo series. And uh, she was aware of this title. Uh, and yeah. in, in this series, she was aware of being in a comic book. She'd often address the reader and John Byrne himself, even climbing out of panels and stuff to get at him, mm-hmm. as well as comment on you know basic comic book stuff. Uh, other writers in the series were Steve Gerber, Peter David, and Simon Furman. Byrne came back for issues 31 through 50. This run actually tested the Comic, comic Code Authority two times in issue number 34, makes a reference to the 1991 Vanity Fair cover in which actress Demi Moore appeared nude and pregnant, which is just referencing a cover, really? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I remember it, so it's not that crazy, but anyway. Uh, And in issue number 40, She-Hulk's naughty bits are covered by blur lines as she's depicted jumping rope, implying that the character is nude, and she wasn't. And that's sort of the shtick with She-Hulk, isn't it? You know, she's always, like, almost nude, almost ripping her clothes off. Um... Later on, She-Hulk by Dan Slott and uh, Juan Bobillo debuted in 2004. It was paused for eight months uh, after issue 12 due to low sales, but it actually did return in 2005, a rare instance of a comic book promise coming true. Uh, (laughs) Slott wrote it to issue 22, in total doing 33 issues. Then Peter David picked it up, he wrote, until issue number 39 in 2009. I like this run overall. It's not perfect. I'd say about a third of it, the last third of it could go, but it's got some... Good comedy. Uh, I thought the David part was actually the weakest. That's it. Sort of does, it. Sort of comes apart there. It's it's yeah. pretty, it's pretty brief too. I mean, it's only like a handful of issues. Uh, it's a half a year, yeah. But it's uh, by then also though the the series I think had kind of run its course. It wasn't many places it could go. Sure. I thought, but uh, anyway, uh, I didn't love this run though, and that's my <laughs> personal thing. And neither did Chris apparently. Charles Soule and Javier Pulido's uh, She Hulk in 2014. This only lasted 12 issues. We found, I found it really boring and really... I appreciated the art. The art was pretty neat because it was different. It definitely was. And there were some really interesting splash pages in it. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of this character, so I, I, need, mm-hmm. I need funny. You know what I mean? And it, was, yeah. it just wasn't funny at all. It was, like, kind of, kind of dull and, I don't know, silly. No, it's, it started off like it was going to be its own thing with her starting up her... Uh, I think she was starting up her, her a, own law, a law firm. law firm in Brooklyn, yeah. Yeah, and but then they then they started getting like all the all the stuff going on in the Avengers was put into it. Uh, you had like the old man Steve Rogers in there for a bit. It just really got too. It, it was it lost its identity. It just yeah, became, you know you're, you're right. It got it got sucked sucked into the Marvel like event grind because originally yeah, it was it looked like it was going to be you know client thing. of the month. Yeah, and like you know some some contrived situation superhero client of the month or whatever it was and then it, it which kinda, could have been interesting yeah i would i would have been okay with that yeah. i did like the art too but yeah i had high hopes for that and enough that we're talking about it for several minutes and we were disappointed <laughs> yes uh, but she hulk's not done she's right now the main character of the hulk title currently being produced by marvel in this year 2017 i have not looked at it i don't know whether she is breaking the fourth wall in that this title. is the first time I've dropped the Hulk in two decades. <laughs> wow, all right. So, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's what you think about in, it, fair in, enough. In shallow and deep. But, uh, this <laughs> is the first time I've dropped. There is no Hulk on my pull list anymore for the first time in over 20 years. Yikes. Um, <laughs> another character who uh, would break the fourth wall is uh, our old friend Deadpool. Oh, yeah. He was created by another old friend, Rob Liefeld and Fabian Niciasa. <laughs> 
He would debut in the New Mutants number 98, February of 1991. He's a super, super agile, smart assassin named Wade Wilson. Uh, he had a couple of miniseries in the 90s, uh, including one written by Mark Wade with pencils by Ian Churchill. Uh, Wade would later comment, Frankly, if I'd known Deadpool was such a creep when I agreed to write the miniseries, I wouldn't have done it. Someone someone who hasn't paid for their crimes presents a problem for me. Well. Definitely understandable. Yeah. Cause I, I, but I'm not sure. It's been a long time since I read the Deadpool or the Circle Chase, so I don't know how nobly he was really depicted at that point. Um, uh, in actual, he had an ongoing series in the wake of uh, Onslaught and the Heroes Reborn stuff. Uh, mm. With art by Ed McGuinness, and uh, the first first couple of years was written by Joe Kelly, and that would be, uh, that was 1997, and this is where Deadpool started becoming more of a you know happy comedy type character yep. where he would address the reader and he would uh, break that fourth wall. Um, the uh, book became a parody of the action genre and satirized many comic book and movie tropes. Uh, Christopher Priest would pick up the book and he'd really internalize Deadpool's comic book awareness. Uh, I remember Priest's first issue started with him, uh, with Deadpool going to like a trailer park that was full of all the characters Christopher Priest had ever written. Hmm. And uh, they were all retired because there was something in the, at, around the turn of the century that was sort of known on the internet as the Priest curse. Uh, where anything that Christopher Priest touched got canceled, got canceled. real quick. Oh, yeah. Well. So, like, you'd have, uh, like, Power Man and Iron Fist were there, and they were, like, both, like, disheveled old men. And, and there were even some of his uh, Valiant characters were in this, uh, were in this uh, oh, and really? Milestone characters were in this trailer park. It was, it was very fun. It's sort of, like, versions of them. Yeah, that sounds, yeah. It's cool that he could laugh at, you know, kind of take a little sure. poke at himself like that. And it also introduced the Marvel version of Lobo. <laughs> It was also kind of interesting. Um, now, for a while, writers uh, of Deadpool ignored this aspect of the character, uh, and because I, they, it went into like a odd death of Superman pistache after I think Jimmy Palmiotti took it over. Oh yeah. And this is where Marvel was trying to have their cake and eat it too, where it would be issue fifty-two and issue one. At the same time, hmm. because you'd have like, you'd have like the four-part death of Superman or the death of Deadpool story, and it they got like a number one through four, but it also maintained the regular numbering. And uh, then there was like a funeral for a friend bit where there were you know fake Deadpool showed up. But anyway, that's uh, not confusing. <laughs> yes, this would go on until about issue sixty-five when uh, Gail Simone came on and picked up the writing duties, I believe. Uh, you know, funnily and funnily enough, Deadpool was canceled at issue sixty-nine. Hey, um, look at that! But yeah, I know. I know yes. her run was really short, but she really injected injected but, back the uh, fourth wall breaking property. Yeah, because yeah. uh, it shifted into a book called Agent X yep. that Gail Simone stayed on. Yeah. Um, and we're not going to list all the Deadpool comics and appearances here, even though we done a bunch uh and there's a whole lot out there to be had and i think uh you know every month another 16 or 17 uh, it's a, i mean it really is unbelievable it's I, I, I looked at the possibility of doing this and i was like that's another nope. half hour of talking you know what i mean like that's almost it's just there's a lot folks don't worry you won't yeah. be bereft of your deadpool no no you go to any comic <laughs> shop and uh at least a shelf and a half a week right mm -hmm. um Plus, there was, I think there, I think there was a movie. Yeah, that might have been some sort of a movie people might know about, so. And before we move on, did you know that Rob Liefeld created him? I, I think he mentioned that once. To, I, I think I saw him mention that. Well, I, you know, I kind of wanted to say, it's interesting, um, you know, Rob Liefeld and Fabian Ecienza get creator credit because they, you know, worked on that uh, New Mutants 98. But 
a lot of people, and I think partly myself included, think that Joe Kelly and maybe Christopher Priest, but definitely Joe Kelly should get some get kind something. of credit, you know, yeah, something because he's the one that made Deadpool into the huge success, made him into a comic. Before that, he was really kind of a whatever. He was a cookie like a cutter, Spider-Man you know, I mean? ripoff almost. Yeah, he was like a very derivative, like Spider-Man met Wolverine plus Deathstroke, and you got uh, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, but at the same time. Um, if that was so, we could technically make a case for every creator ever to have worked on a character sure. to want to get a piece of it. So anyway, that's a discussion for another day. But last person <laughs> we're going to talk about here that broke the fourth wall in comics is Superboy Prime, everyone's favorite. Mm. He debuted in DC Comics Presents number 87. That was November 1985. Cover date by Elliot S. Magan and Kurt Swan on art. The uh, Clark Kent of Earth Prime, where DC Comics here appear in comic books, always implied to be our Earth the real world, back yeah. then. I don't. I, I think now actually Earth Prime is the main DC universe. I have no idea. But anyway, back <laughs> back then, Earth Prime was meant to be the real world. You know where we buy comic books, and then Earth One was where they start superheroing. Um, and his dad, even on Earth Prime, didn't didn't want him to be named Clark Kent because he didn't want him to be named after a comic book character. But his, he relented to his wife's wishes, as, uh, you know, husbands are known to do. More often than not. Now, uh, all is normal until he turns 15, and while dressed as Superboy at a costume party, has superpowers triggered by Haley's Comet flying overhead. Turns out he was teleported to Earth Prime by Jor-El just before Krypton blew up. Krypton Prime, I guess it must have been. It uh, have to be right now. Sure, uh, whatever. <laughs> At the same time, luckily, Earth-1 Superman shows up, and they stop a tidal wave together, and they are, yeah. he's very, very happy to meet him. Now, uh, Earth-Prime gets destroyed during Crisis on Infinite Earths in 1986, though Superboy Prime does fight against the Anti-Monitor alongside the rest of the heroes. He kind of gets away from the entropy, and he's able to, you know, make a, a final push with that last, uh, you know, giant crew of heroes. Crew yeah. of heroes, yeah, exactly. Um, and as a reward, he gets to hang out in a... <laughs> Paradise Dimension with Alexander Luther Jr. from Earth 3, the good Luther, and Cal L, no E, and Lois Lane from Earth 2, the original Superman and Lois Lane. Sounds uh, like paradise, right? Yeah, we. I, I like to also call this the <laughs> under the rug dimension, you know? There you go. I can put these over here on the uh, back of the shelf, you know? That'd be fun. Now, while there, Superboy Prime gets wrapped up in his memories, and he's really frustrated that he's separated from all his familiar trappings. And also, his family is dead. You know, his whole world, Earth Prime, has vanished. Uh, So he's not doing well. Plus, I guess he doesn't really want to hang out with a married, an old married couple and Alexander Luther Jr. all the time. Uh, He also (laughs) lives in the shadow of Earth 2 Superman somewhat. Uh, You know, it's just sort of his feelings as a young guy, I think, feeling, uh, you know, constrained. Uh, he gets so angry <laughs> that he punches the walls of reality, altering continuity and bringing on Infinite Crisis in 2005. Now, this punch brought Jason Todd back to life, brought Elastigirl and Negative Man back to life, streamlined all of Superman's origins into one, messed with various Hawkmen, uh, Hawkmen, Hawkmen's origins, Hawkmen's which they did not need more messing with, I'll tell you <laughs> what. Uh, messed with the various Legionses, another one that does, didn't need more complication. Oh, here's another one. Messed with Donna Troy's origins. Origins. <laughs> origins. Uh, and wiped Emerald Dawn 2 out of continuity, so Jeff Johns doesn't need to worry about Hal Jordan spending 90 days in the clink for his DUI, which I think was probably for the best, because that's a pretty crazy story. <laughs> now, in this way, he's the only character to actually break the fourth wall. He doesn't, yes. he doesn't address the audience. or get, he, There's nothing really silly about him. 
Uh, although there is a lot of commentary on comic book collecting and the industry, you know what I mean? But it's not addressed to the to the reader, but he actually did shatter the fourth wall of comics or mm -hmm. of narrative so uh and a lot of people do hate him how do you feel about him uh i've heard him called superboy wine a yeah lot. And, uh, that that's kind of where i said i you know I, I i we've talked about this before i'm sure on the air and off the air i i've never seen an industry just so so disrespectful toward their audience there is that toward yeah. their toward their customer base it's like hey you collectors you're all jerks thanks for keeping us in business but you're all jerks uh, any and, you know, yeah. there's a certain self-loathing in comics in general you know what i mean that that's a, almost a psychological examination that could be done of the industry mm -hmm. uh and you know and i think part of part of the, that is you know playing on the, the fans is part of that shooting yourself in the foot kind of attitude you know what i mean or and, cut your nose the off the most interesting your face. thing apart about this was that it, it was being written by a dude who was bringing back the dc universe of his childhood yeah that's right huh. yeah it's like hmm. <laughs> but but i but i will say for superboy prime is that he's meant to be hated i mean in a way yes, if, if you don't if you don't like him he's doing the right thing you're not supposed to like him you're supposed to be annoyed by him and i always thought even as stupid as it is that punching the walls of reality was such a comic book that where else could you do that? You know what I mean? Yeah. And reset a, like a whole, you know, a bunch of characters. You know what I mean? There's no other form of <laughs> literature or art in the world where you could just do something like that. And nope. it's like, people are like, all right, sure, whatever. You know what I mean? We'll take <laughs> you just accept it. Yeah, well, whatever. You punch the walls of reality. Okay, <laughs> we'll go with that. But, uh, but we would love to know what you think of Superboy Prime and of Animal Man and of characters that break the fourth wall in comics. And you can write to us and let us know at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Uh, we're going to start dropping social media, folks. We do This mm -hmm. stuff does exist. I don't keep it up as much as I should. Chris is, has uh, linked <laughs> up a little better with it than I have. But uh, you can find us on Facebook at Cosmic T Mill History. We're on Twitter at Cosmic T Mill. You can find me personally on Twitter. At Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And I tell you every week that you got to listen to Chris's person or read Chris's personal blog. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com where he reviews a DC comic every single day, seven days a week. And you have had some fines lately. You've been uh, posting mm -hmm. up your uh, quarter bin, you know, yes, fines. I, I and it's uh, bodes think, well for uh, the near future. I think folks like seeing the weirdo stuff that I've been finding. Uh... Well, you know, also you find that those things, you know, you see them one week, they show up on your blog a couple of weeks later. So it's a little, often a little preview of what you might be uh, getting. This is true. So it's uh, definitely follow him on Twitter, read that blog. It is very entertaining, very informative, and I always uh, love Thank to you. talk it up and drive people over there if I can. But I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? <laughs> I have one thing to say to our listeners. Yeah. I, we can see you. Oh, whoa. Look at that. He did it. He <laughs> broke the fourth. Is there a fourth wall in radio? I don't think so. I think it's just one wall, two walls. I don't think so. Yeah, I think you broke the second wall. That's all you did. I did. Well, uh, with that, now that Chris is looking at you, listening to this podcast, <laughs> I would like everyone to keep it on the treadmill cartoonishly. See you. If it's laughing, you need it. Then it's laughing indeed Cause it's laughing at me Yes, it's laughing at me
beginning